0: This morning our sermon text comes from Luke chapter nine verses twenty eight through forty three A. Luke writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now about eight days after these sayings he took with him Peter and James and John, and went up them on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God.
1: Let's pray. God, we've heard your word read, and oh, it is true. we come to your word, we are dealing with matters of life and death, things of eternity. So please may you clear our minds of everything that distracts us, of all the things of this week that are important, but ultimately are far less important. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. So I don't this may not mean anything to you, but um, does everyone remember that whole trust fall exercise? My experience was done in, in, in gym, which is really strange because I don't, like gym is supposed to be about exercise and I don't know how a trust fall is like getting anyone's heart rate going except for the person falling. But the idea of a trust fall is you have a person who stands up on like a chair or, or, a, or a ladder, like on the, on the stage here, and then they turn backwards and they have people, like usually like eight people will line up behind them and kind of link arms. And the person falls backwards. And the people who are linking their arms are going to catch them. Hence the reason it's called a trust fall. And they're pretty terrifying because, I mean, you know, God made our bodies to not want to fall into empty space behind us. Like we want to see, you know, our bodies naturally want to protect themselves. Um, and, of course, there's always that one joker who will intentionally drop you. And once they do that once, it's like, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not trusting you again. And they have to wait until either a new student transfers in or like, the poor exchange student doesn't speak English. Anyway, so um, uh, trust falls. Some treat faith like a trust fall. Like a trust fall, I don't know what's behind me. Vague idea. I'm just going to throw myself. And sometimes we, we treat faith like that. Like faith is just a blind leap in the dark. I'm just going to trust, hope for the best, throw something against the wall, hope it sticks. And there's truth that like faith in God, the God we worship is a God we can't see. God doesn't ordinarily speak in visions and dreams. It does happen, but it's not the ordinary way he speaks to us. Um, We worship a God we can't see. But it's not a God that we know nothing about. It's not a blind leap in the dark, but it's faith in a God who has proven his trustworthiness. He's demonstrated the fact that he is trustworthy. He's not the joker behind us who's going to drop us because he thinks it's funny and will break our arm. He's one who has demonstrated that he will catch us. And so when we trust him, this is a God that we are in relationship with, who is Shown that he that he's shown both in the history of the church and the people of God, but also in our personal lives, that he is a God who is worthy of our trust. He is trustworthy. He's proven his power, he's proven his wisdom, and maybe most importantly, he's proven his great love and his goodness. He is a God that we can trust. Now, in our text this morning, these are two independent stories. We could have preached them as two different sermons, but when you pair them together, which is what I'm doing this morning. You get this. You, you, you get this dynamic of a, of, a, of a Jesus who proves his trustworthiness, who affirms to his disciples that he is the Christ, even if he doesn't look quite how they expected. And then he calls them to greater faith and greater trust and greater reliance. And so, keeping them together, we get that dynamic. And this is a Christ who is trustworthy, and therefore he calls for our, trice, or calls for our trust. Uh, to give you uh, just the the the. the um, outline of our, of our time this morning. First, we're going to see Jesus in his glory, and therefore he is a one who is trustworthy. We see him in his glory. We're going to see the Jesus who's able when we are unable, and then lastly, we'll see the Jesus who deserves and expects our trust. Now, I want to do a quick recap again, because um, we're in the middle of stories. And it's helpful to remember what happened before. Throughout first eight chapters of Luke is this driving question, okay, who is this Jesus? He's healing, he's casting out demons, he's teaching. Who is he? And we get the definitive answer of that last time. When Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the anointed Messiah, the one who's going to come to deliver God's people. And it was, a, it was, it was a, a, a true answer, but what's clear is that the disciples' understanding of the Christ is not quite accurate. And so Jesus has to kind of come back and... and, and, and correct their understanding of the Christ that that Jesus is first going to have to go to the cross before he goes to glory. And so those who want to follow after him will likewise have to walk the way of the cross, a life of self-denial, of taking up our cross and following Jesus. And here we come to our text this morning. That's just happened in, in, in the background. So let's look at verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Verse 28, eight days later. So they just had this teaching from Jesus where Jesus says, look, the Christ is not who you think he is. He's not, he's going to be doing things that don't, that, that you're not expecting. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And this is, we know how this goes. So we're not shocked by this. But for the disciples, this would have been traumatic to say, to say the least. It's like, Jesus, you're not who we thought you were going to be. And those eight days gave them a lot of time to maybe start thinking, maybe we have this wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't quite the Christ we thought he was. And so Jesus gives them an affirmation. No, disciples, I am the Christ. There are parts of me that you may not understand now. But you were right. I am the Christ, the Messiah like this i don't know if you've ever been to the alamo in san antonio texas if you're a boy who grew up in america the alamo probably loomed large in your imagination right davy crockett king of the wild frontier died in the alamo with all the other men defending that small mission against I don't know, was it the mexicans or spanish i don't know but they died and it was like they went out on flames of glory I and mean, this is like this is like 10 year old like you know man fill your imagination with that and I live in San Antonio. I got to actually visit the Alamo. And uh, it's, it's disappointing. Let's just put it that way. So you drive up. It's actually quite small. It's probably not bigger, much bigger than the sanctuary. Not the building, the sanctuary. And, uh, and it's right. I mean, San Antonio is a major city. It's 2 million people. It's over twice the size of Louisville. So, you, you know, it's right downtown. There's like commercial buildings and hotels. And, and you're driving along. They're really high. And then all of a sudden, there's this little squat building. And you're like, that, that can't be it. And unless there were signs out front that said the Alamo, unless there were crowds of people waiting to get in, unless there was like a ticket booth taking my money, you know, to, to get in, like I, I would just assume I, this isn't it. We missed it. We must turn around and go back. That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, he, just, he just told the disciples his mission, his ministry is going to look very different than what they expected. So he gives them a very, very clear affirmation. No. You're going to, have to trust me. I am the Christ, and I'm going to prove it to you. And there may be parts of my ministry you don't understand at this time. But yes, you have it right. This, I really am the Christ. And he does this by giving them three affirmations or three confirmations. And the first is just in his appearance. So here Jesus is praying. His disciples fall asleep. And as Jesus is praying, as he's communing with his father, it, 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 it says his face has changed, but literally it says his face is different. And it's just like, it's, it's altered. Whether, they can still tell Jesus. Maybe they fully can't articulate how it's different, but he just is different. And what's happening here is, remember, Jesus, when he came to earth, he was fully God and fully man, but he veiled his divinity. I think sometimes we think if, if I'd been alive at that time, I would have seen Jesus walking down the street. I just would have known, there goes the Son of Man. But you wouldn't have he would have looked like another person and that's why many rejected him ultimately they were impressed by his works but he just looked like an ordinary dude jesus veiled his divinity but here for a moment he's beginning to unveil and they're seeing who is the one with whom they have to do it says his face is is different his whole body is is, is brilliantly white. It's, it's, it's like the the, the the brightness of a lightning bolt. They can't see. I mean, as they wake up, they're, they're covering their eyes. His whole body is like this. So much that even his clothing is blindingly light. This is the first indication to them that, yes, this is the Christ. And the Christ is maybe more than they thought. Maybe even more than they bargained for. The second affirmation is, is not just his appearance, but... His companions, the people who appear with him. It's Moses and Elijah that may seem like a strange choice. Like, why not Abraham and David? Like I think They're pretty monumental figures. Why Moses and Elijah? But these are intentional choices. Again, affirming to the disciples, Jesus may not look, his ministry may not look exactly what you thought, but this is the Christ. First, got to realize Moses, I mean, Moses was the biggest figure in ancient Judaism, hands down. Even more than Abraham. Because Moses, okay, at the exodus, God's deliverance of, uh, of Israel from Egypt, was a defining moment for the people of Israel. And he did it through Moses. Not only that, God gave his law, his, his re- revelation of himself, he gave it through Moses. In fact, in, uh, God himself talks about Moses, the man of God, like this. He says, when I, with him, in Numbers 12, 11, with him, I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. God would speak to prophets in riddles and visions and dreams. But with Moses, no, no, he would speak to him face to face. Like a brother. That's amazing. So first, there's an indication when Moses comes to the bidding of Jesus, is like, okay, if you're greater than Moses, like if Moses is serving Jesus here, that means Jesus is greater than... This is a significant individual. But second, there's a very intentional reason why Moses is there. Because God himself had promised to Moses... In Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, he says to Moses that I will raise up for them, God's people, Israel, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God tells Moses, one day I'm gonna raise up another man of God, a prophet, a leader like you. And Moses being here, It's a clear indication that he's saying this is that one. It's not just another Moses. He's someone who's even greater than Moses. But it's not just Moses. He also sends Elijah. Now, the reason why Moses there is pretty obvious, because you have that Deuteronomy 18 passage, Elijah's not quite as obvious. But I think what's going on here is in Malachi 4.5, which is the second-to-last verse in the Old Testament, the second-to-last verse that was revealed by God before the coming of Christ, Malachi 4, 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So by, by, by Elijah coming to Jesus as well, it's like an indication, hey, the day of the Lord has come. When through his anointed one he will deliver his people. These are intentional figures all confirming to the disciples, this is the Christ. This is the anointed one, the Messiah. But then third, the final affirmation is the cloud. You know, When you read the story, up till now, the disciples are kind of just starstruck. I don't know if you've ever met anyone famous, semi-famous. I remember one time... Uh, I've lived a very boring life, so this is my example. Uh, on co- my college campus, my, uh, the president of my college was not like a man of the people. He did not hang out with students. I remember one time walking by and I turned a corner and there was him with his like, big retinue walking by me and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Dwayne Liffin. Um, and, uh, and he said, like, hi, I was very jovial and walked on. And I was kind of like, uh. like, you know, starstruck. Again, I've lived a very boring life, so that's my example of being starstruck. But, um, that's kind of what the disciples are like at this point. So this, you know, Peter says, uh, uh, great, okay, I'll make a tent for Moses and for Elijah and for Jesus. We'll have a little feast of the booths uh, because, you know, what else do you do when Moses and Elijah show up on your front door? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's starstruck. But when this cloud comes, it changes, and he's afraid. The disciples are afraid. It's not the cloud. It's not that the cloud's scary. If you've been on a mountain, clouds aren't scary. They're more annoying because they obscure your view. But it's because... This cloud was God's presence. Again, using these Old Testament allusions, in the Old Testament God would often use a cloud to signify his presence. So when he led Israel through the wilderness, right, it was fire by night, cloud by day. That would be over the tabernacle. Or when the temple was dedicated, at the conclusion of the dedication, God's glory filled the temple in the form of a cloud and so when this cloud comes the disciples grow afraid because this is God's presence that has showed up and they know that they sense his holiness and they're afraid (laughs) and then I mean the most the largest confirmation you can get God himself speaks and says this is my son my chosen one listen to him you can't get much more confirmation than that when God Himself speaks to you. And it's interesting that the disciples are silent after this. And again, I think the idea is like, not only has it been confirmed that this is the Christ, but they're realizing that Christ might be more than we thought He was. And they can't quite fully understand, but the, 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 the indication here is it's like, they just need to, they, you know, they're just chewing on this. They're just processing what they've just seen. And they'll understand it more fully later. see Jesus in his glory. He is the Christ. And there's an amazing theological truth there that we see from this when we, again, pair this with the story that comes after. Because look at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, Jesus Christ is a God of glory, but the Jesus of glory came down the mountain to seek you and to seek me. We can look at this story as like a micro story of the entire story of Jesus' life. Jesus was, um, you know, the second member of the Trinity. He existed from all eternity. He was run through whom all things were created. He was one for whom all things were created. When God made the world, it was for the glory of Jesus. He dwelt in heaven with people like Moses and Elijah, the greatest men of God that have ever existed. But he's willing to leave that behind and come down to us to seek out you, Jack, Ethan, Donnie. I think when we're wondering, does God really love me? Is he really good? Not only do we have the fact that Jesus was willing to die on the cross, which is, should end any question, but we also have the fact that Jesus is willing to come. Leave his place of glory and come to a place where he'd be misunderstood as the king of kings. People would have no idea who he was. I mean, th- think of it like, we hate being slighted. And we'll, we'll stew on it. A coworker or a boss treats us like we're inferior, or a neighbor, whatever, even a waitress at a restaurant, and we'll just like, we'll stew on it, and it'll be a dialogue. I should have said this back, and blah, blah, blah. And we're just humans. And this is the divine God of eternity who's willing to come and be slighted by all those he made. And he does not strike back. He does it to seek and to save those who are dead in their sins. When we're wondering, is God good? Does he love me? Does he really care? Oh, he left heaven for us. And we wonder, we can trust. We see Jesus in his glory. But we also say Jesus, again, as the one who is abundantly able when we are unable. I'm sorry for giving the same point three weeks in a row. It's not my fault, though. When you preach the scriptures, you preach what's there. And maybe God in his wisdom knew that we in our foolishness were, are quick to make much of our ability and, and, and little of God's ability. And so he keeps us as a theme repeating again and again and again. But again, we see in, in verses 37 to 43 that Jesus is abundantly able where we are unable. Let's read these verses together. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a Spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So Jesus comes down the mountain. The crowds find him quickly. And then there's a father whose son is literally being destroyed by a demonic being. I've... To my knowledge, I, I don't think I've ever seen demonic possession up close. I think I may have seen it at a distance once. I've never seen it up close. I've talked to people who have, and I trust their accounts. And there's nothing more chaotic than demon possession. It's the kind of cosmic warfare that's normally invisible, and all of a sudden it bubbles up into our visible sight. There's no playbook, like what do you do when your friend is possessed by a demon or afflicted? But there's no playbook, there's no, you know, ritual we can read some magical words and it'll go away. It's just chaos, it's uncertainty, it's unclear. And what's clear in this story is that this, the disciples are ran over their head. Like they try, and what's interesting is they've been out, they've done this before. Like they were out on this preaching ministry where they were casting out demons. But they come to this one and they're out of their depths, the father can't do anything. I mean, you know, he's watching his son literally die. Of course, he's doing everything he can. He can't do anything. But even still, in the chaos of a demonic possession, Jesus is still able, abundantly able. He was the one that was just, <laughs> he was transfigured. I mean, this is the Christ of God. Yes, of course, he's able. And this again brings us to a theological truth that even when we are in over our heads, Jesus is able. Even when we are in over, when we're, like when life's chaos and, and, and uncertainties and we're, I'm over my head, like Jesus is able. Think of parenting. And by the way, I'm not, comparing, I'm not comparing parenting to demonic possession. I'm just saying. In parenting, there's no manual. There's no like, hey, when your kid smears paint on the wall, go to page 32, this is what you do. There's no like, instruction for when your kid asks questions you don't really know how to answer or, or when, like, you're failing. As a, there's just no, like, we're in over our heads when we're parenting. Big time. And it's such a comfort to know that even in parenting, Jesus is able, when our steps are faltering and weak, he's able to care for our kids. Marriage, I mean, gosh, there's nothing more over your head you can do than get married. You think after 20 years, maybe I'll figure it out, but no, you'll be married to a new person because whoever you married will change. We are unable, Jesus is able. College students, I don't know, this is my experience. I feel like my whole life was planned out for me. I always knew what was coming next until I hit graduation, and then it was just like big, blurry darkness for the next 60 years, and I was like, I know I'll hopefully get married in there somewhere. Maybe I'll have kids, and then I'll die. And I was like, it was just uncertainty, and it was actually very terrifying. It was difficult. we're in over our heads, Jesus is able. And because Jesus is able, because of who he's revealed himself to be in this transfiguration as the Christ of God, the Jesus of glory, he not only deserves our trust, but he expects it. It's our last point. Jesus deserves and expects our trust. You know this story is unusual because of his rebuke. He's often asked to do things, and he typically does not rebuke people. Who rebuke the Pharisees? Um, but but this is unusual. Why does he rebuke this father? And, and, and the and I mean, what's read into here is he's also rebuking his disciples because it, it, it specifies that they had failed. What's going on here? Well, this is helpful um, at at times. Again, so there's. We have four Gospels, and a lot of times they're all telling the same event, and they include different details. And so it's helpful to look at the other Gospels and see the details they include. And when we look at Mark, he includes this detail that Luke doesn't. That's really helpful to understand what's going on here. After Jesus has cast out the the demons, in Mark chapter 9, verse 28 to 29, it says this. And when he, Jesus, had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? Again, they had been casting out demons on their ministry. They were not like, you know, uh, this was not like a new thing for them. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What Jesus is saying there is, look, this demon could only be cast out if you were relying on the power of God and not your own power. If you were... embracing and living out the fact that you are unable, but I am able. You gotta remember, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people, not to give people a free meal, but just so that his 12 disciples would know beyond a doubt, I am very unable for what Jesus is gonna call me to do, but Jesus is able in ways I can't imagine. And here after their itinerant ministry, they're thinking, well, yeah, you know, I'm casting out demons, doing it out of my own strength. So Jesus rebukes them. He wants his disciples to grow in their faith and their trust and their reliance in him. Here's the thing. We are far more easily satisfied with our growth as Christians than Jesus is. We're far more content to be satisfied with what we've achieved, to look back on past experiences and say, look what God's done. I've I've reached this level, and I'm I'm, I'm content to stay here. We're more content we're far more easily satisfied than jesus is and in his mercy he will rebuke us when we plateau or when we're attempted to plateau it's his mercy and sometimes he does it in funny ways i had a friend who interned at southeast christian church he was not from Louisville, so he did not know a ton about this church um but uh, he was interning and, and part of it was that he's get to preach sunday morning So he thought, that's amazing. I I mean, he knew Southeast is a big church. He's like, I'm going to preach. This is like a 23-year-old guy, okay? So he's like, I'm going to preach Sunday morning. So they give him the Sunday, he's going to preach. And and so, I mean, he's like, he's spending hours and hours on this sermon. He is pumped, and he's like, I'm going to knock it out of the park. This is going to be awesome. They tell him to show up at 7.30 a.m., he said, like, well, that's kind of unusual, but he figured, well, I'll be hanging out with Bob Russell in the green room or whatever they have at Southeast, and, you know, and I'll go preach. So he gets there at 7.30, he goes in the main sanctuary, it's dark, there's no one there, that's the first indication this is not what he thinks. And in the very back, there's like a bright room, and that's when he realized that what they were asking him to preach at was the seniors' Sunday school class, the average age was 75, And he's realizing that his matrix intro may not be the most relevant introduction. And his big point is, you guys got to be in community, so you got to get out of your houses and go spend time with people to a room of like half of them are in wheelchairs. And so he gets to the end of that sermon and... um, uh, one of them invites them to uh, their Sunday school. They're like, you know, our normal teacher, he's really good. You could probably learn something from him. It was a very humbling experience for this kid who's like, man, I'm just gonna knock this out of the park. Sometimes God, you know, in his mercy, he rebukes us in a humorous way as we try to rely on our own strength. Some of in really painful ways as he refines us to show us our weakness, to show us our desperate need of him. But here's what we have to Remember? It's always in mercy when Jesus rebukes us. It's always in his love. It's never to harm us. It's because he wants a closer, a deeper, a more intimate relationship with us. So he's willing to at times put us into pain in order to lead us there. And how do we know that his rebuke is in mercy? It doesn't sound very merciful in this one. How do we know it's in mercy? How do we know he really loves his disciples? Again, because he was still willing to come down the mountain, even for faithless disciples. It's like Jesus is on the mountain, transfigured, hanging out with Elijah and Moses. He knows his disciples like, still don't really understand who he is, he knows they're going to be faithless. He still comes down the mountain. This is what I want to leave us with, is that Jesus is one. Yes, he's glorious. Yes, he wants us to grow in trust and reliance on him so that when you're 40, you are more faithful than when you're 20. and When you're 80, you're more faithful than when you're 40. Yes, and he will do what it takes to get us there. But he's still the one who came down the mountain, even for faithless disciples. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. And so you want to please God Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak, and that can be discouraging. We have to remember, yes, Jesus wants us to grow, but he loved us before we cared about pleasing him. And he continues to love weak and faithless disciples like you and me, and that is what grace is. Grace is not like God tolerates us, like, okay, I'll let you back in. Grace is unearned love and delight for unworthy people like you and me. Our Savior who saved us in grace and who in grace will not allow us to plateau but will draw us into a deeper and fuller relationship of trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we... um, because your spirit lives in us we long to walk in greater faith and reliance and trust on you so that we grow small and you grow bigger and bigger and bigger that's that's the longing of our hearts we want to be close to you and you are one who draws us near please may you do that more and more help us to live in the in the in the absolute conviction that you loved us before we cared about you, and you love us, and you care for us, and you delight in us, even as we are faithless at times. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.